the men have landed on the shores of Monaco and are playing at the Monte Carlo Country Club, one of the most illustrious events that the ATP holds. I'm so used to the lack of crowds at this point, I almost don't notice, but it's very quiet there. Normally there's yachts rolling by on the ocean front and you've got royalty hanging out in the crowd. It's usually one of the most iconic views in tennis, that shot over the crowd, over the water, that long shot. And they changed the side of the court that they're doing the camera angle from this year because the, the side they usually do it is usually a bigger stand full of crowd so they can get the camera in the right spot because this year there's no crowd, there's a smaller stand on that side so they've gone on the other baseline this time so that's ah. a bit of a change up as well. I did notice one match that was out on some side court where there were no seats. There was one of these plastic chairs in the corner. It just like looked like a regular club court. However, behind the fence is this cliff that goes down to this ocean <laughs> view and it looks so majestic and crazy. Yeah, I saw that one. On that court as well, the coaches are also just sitting on the court on plastic chairs. It's a little bit of a mix of the super rich world of money tax shelter. That's basically what Monte Carlo is, yeah, right? Yeah, that's why they all live there. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I found out? The country club isn't even in Monaco. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> I saw that somewhere and I didn't double check it. It's in France? Yeah, exactly. It's just across the border. <laughs> uh, so funny. It's very strange. I guess there's no border control, right? It's the EU, so I think you just can drive back and forth. Yeah. I always did wonder how they managed to fit so many tennis courts in Monaco because the place is so small. <laughs> they had to use a bit of France as well to fit it in. Well, they've already got the F1 course there, right? Maybe that goes into France as well. You were watching a little F1, Al. Yeah, I do watch that. That's one of the most iconic ones, but that's just on the street. That's just literally through the city of Monaco. I think it's like, you know, you're in a cafe in Monte Carlo, but if you kind of wave your arm a bit this way, it goes into France. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's what Europe is like. There's not a lot of space. <laughs> careful, careful with that, David. Because <laughs> you know where that leads. You know where that logic leads. Where does it lead? To uh, anti-immigration policy or something? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's okay. Bring, bring them all to America. We've got room. <laughs> bring me your huddled masses. That's right. They gotta go somewhere, but probably not to the Monte Carlo Country Club. Well, yes, to even to the Monte Carlo Country Club. It all must be opened up for everyone. I'm just delighted to be watching tennis on clay again. I'm thinking about going to the dirt shop, picking up a little tennis clay. How are you enjoying the clay feel, Matt? Um, well, just watched a bit of the Evans match against Goffin last night and um you know it's a different style of tennis because of the higher bounce and like the points are a bit longer so there is you know that more cat and mouse you can get to a lot of short balls and then like if it goes if they play the lob over your head then maybe you can go back and get it, it makes for some pretty fun tennis don't you think yeah a hundred percent i i I think it can result in longer, more grinding matches. But in general, I think it's just so much easier to get a sense for the tactics of the sport. I feel like it rewards a certain play style. Topspin is very valuable. 
movement's very valuable. Endurance is required because the matches go longer, because you can't just hit through people or drop the ball with a slice onto the grass in a way that just dies. I think grass rewards yep, yep. a little bit more of the like technical skill and and power. Yeah, and power. And clay, it's more like endurance, strength, and tactics. Um, so it's kind of interesting those things go together. But yeah, in that Evans GoFan match, like there was a point late where GoFan hit the crap out of the ball, and I was sure it was a winner. And somehow Evans just tracked it down and extended the rally. Um, so I think you get a lot more of that dramatic push and pull where players are like gaining the advantage, but not always seizing it. And points can go back and forth a lot more. I love that. Mm. Yeah, every time it comes around, I get excited for it. But then <clears throat> once I start watching the matches, I realize that it's my favorite season of the mm. year. I remember it every year that I, as soon as I start watching matches, I'm like, yeah, this, I, I love this so much. Mm. And even the way that the drop shots bite into the surface and just stays so close to the net, it's become such a tactic for everyone to use. I like that as well. It's just the best. Mm. Yeah, I think I think maybe one of the only things I don't like about it compared to other surfaces are, are the aesthetics on TV. You know, there's this whole green versus red versus blue clay thing. None of those colors are really accurate. Maybe the blue clay was actually blue, but like red clay is really brown and green <laughs> green clay is really gray. But I think there's a there's a quality to the material because it's, you know, it's effectively dirt. It's like a particulate matter, so it has like a lot of fineness to it. I do really like the aesthetic sound of clay. Like I think grass is too quiet. You don't hear a thing. Whereas with clay, you've got this scuffling, you know, the shuffling of feet and the sliding and it's all so pronounced. But it I find that it feels a little washed out on TV and sometimes hides the ball. Yeah, I, I didn't see when they tried the blue clay. Uh, I wish they had persisted with that experiment a bit more. It was in Madrid, wasn't it, I think? It was. I think some of the players was apparently were not happy with it, but I think it was slightly different actual clay. And uh, mm. But then, then some people were saying that maybe that was not so much the case and that was a bit more like a, a mental thing. You know, they were just thinking that it was different because it looked different. It, in any case, I wish they had have persisted and got the right material and made that blue rather than whatever they got because i think blue clay would have been good on tv to watch would have been aesthetically pleasing there was like one experiment they tried it and there was a bit of backlash and they were just like oh too hard we're getting too copying too much heat for this like let's just go back to what everyone is comfortable with and move on so it's a shame it feels like a missed opportunity there mm. but you could never do blue clay at roland garros for example like it just that would never happen because the yeah the red clay is just too iconic and too beautiful right i think the traditional home would probably stay the same but you know you've had hard courts change at other slams in terms of coloring and as we talked about last time like some grass court events have transitioned over to other surfaces over time it just would be nice to see more variation and i, I think that's one thing about the the european clay court season is that it starts to all look the same. Um, and so, yeah, I liked that Madrid had decided to go out on a limb. You know, they have some of the wildest looking stadiums. The Caja Ma mm. Ma Magica, the, the big stadium that they play on, is just 
crazy looking building and a place I want to go watch tennis someday. Yeah, me too. So yeah, it felt like just like, like the little bit of footage I've seen from it. It just, yeah, it seems like the yellow ball pops a little bit better against that blue dirt. Yeah. There's a reason, there's a reason why all the hard court tends it up blue because it does work against the ball so well. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm a sucker for traditional colors. I know you're right. Like the blue kind of makes sense. Although, like when the Australian Open changed over from green to blue because of the whole tradition thing, a lot of people were upset. And to this day, I think people, some people think, you know, it just shouldn't be blue. Huh. Because the Australian Open was traditionally green? Yeah, I think green and also because green is like the color of tennis courts. Um, right, going back to grass. Going back to grass, like the ultimate traditional color. Yeah, you know a style I feel like is absent these days that I would like to see more is the like single tone, you know, where it's just, it's like the one green or the one blue. They always do multi-tone where the court is one color and then the out-of-play area is different. Huh, interesting. I do like the two-tone, but yeah, I would like to see maybe... The singular, the one tone every now and then, maybe? Yeah, just to mix it up. I'm not I'm not talking smack about two-tone. I mean, um, mm. you guys know that, like, every time I do the album art, I go and grab the current tournament, and I, I just t- I find a picture, and I sample the colors so that the album art colors match the tournament colors that are going on. Yeah. And I realized this time, because we did a bunch from the Australian Open in a row, and then there was the Middle East and uh, and Miami, and like the color changed ever so slightly, like from a light blue to a kind of teal on the sideline. Mm. And I was like, "That's a little disappointing." Yeah, I know. I th- I thought you forgot to do that because when we changed over from the Australian Open to Miami, I was like, "Did Dave forget to do the color change thing?" But it was just that it was very similar. Yeah, it's like the Miami Dolphins colors, so they kind of. Yeah, it just happened to land very similarly. I just want contrast. I want every event to feel distinct. And I don't have to like them all, but yeah, I like I like uh just a little bit of up and down. You could like change all the colors like have multicolored chords. Mm. I know that would be distracting, well, but it would be fun. There is precedence for that. World Team Tennis does that where they actually they alternate the colors of the service box and the I don't know what you call the box that's behind, you know that's in play like the rally box or something yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's it's very strange looking and it does look like they're staging some kind of carnival game but that's that's kind of what world team tennis is to be honest oh i i do i have a theory about the blue clay i think maybe people don't like the blue clay because it's unnatural looking and clay is supposed to be a naturalistic surface right it's like where is there a blue rock it's not like they're taking blue rocks and grinding them up i subscribe to that school of thought because like how do they make the clay blue where is blue dirt in the world they have to use some unnatural coloring agent don't they unless it's like made from sapphire i'm not really sure that they would go to those lengths mining up a bunch of sapphire and then grinding it into a pasty (laughs) clay surface (laughs) blue was the last color to be found Really? Like, for us to be able to reproduce, like, in paint form and stuff. Huh. Yeah, there's there's books about it. I remember reading something about how we perceive the ocean as blue, but really it's only because it's in reflection of the sky. And mm. 
that it isn't as common of a natural coloring as you would think, even though water covers two-thirds of the globe and we associate blue with water. There are blue flowers. Yeah, blueberries. And, um, yeah, blue, blue squid, squid ink. <laughs> what else? You, you know of anything? Anything that's blue? Do you know anything that's blue? <laughs> I feel like this is one of those early morning children's <laughs> programs now. <laughs> Name a blue thing. But it has to be natural. Like I'm, I'm watching the waveform in my uh, digital audio workstation. It's blue, but that's not natural. How about you at home? Can you name something that's blue? Yeah, I'm having a blank of blue natural things right now. Well, yeah, we should ask Davy Gravy to name some blue things for us. Yeah, yeah that'd what's, be good. What's Davy Gravy's favorite blue thing? Can, can we find that out? My favorite blue thing is the glowing LED light emanating from the heart of your everyday hard drive enclosure. So um, in Charleston, they're playing on the green clay. That's kind of natural, isn't it? Like, it kind of looks a bit natural. Well, I think the green clay looks grayish. And, yeah, and that definitely looks more like a naturally stony, sedimentary color to me. Yeah. And... Um, in Charleston at the moment, uh, on Jabur, who we saw at the Australian Open, mm. has made it into the semifinals. Oh, great. And you, and you know who else has? Astra Sharma. Astra Sharma. Hey. Hey, representing Australia. Australia, not New Zealand. That was a, that was a furphy. I know. I, was, I had bunk, bunk information there. But um, she is like really coming up. Yeah, that's a that's a big result. I mean, Charleston two. So they've had the women have had two events in Charleston. The first one was a, I think a five hundred event, and they had a lot of the top women there. But it seemed like they kind of all fell by the wayside. Um, Kudermatova won the title, I believe, and mm. yeah, it seemed like Ash Barty lost early, Cannon lost early. Uh, Magarutha lost early, you know, like a lot of the big names just kind of fell out, even though it seemed like it had the potential to be a really exciting tournament for the women. And maybe it still was. I, I didn't actually get to watch it. Yeah. And some players are playing both versions of it. So they get a second bite at the cherry. Yeah. Like Kovinich, didn't she get to the final? Mm, that's right. I think she lost in the final. Well, we'll have Davy Gravy check on that for us. Kovinik lost to Kudermatova in the final of the Volvo Car Open, 6-4, 6-2. Um, she's back in the semifinals. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Maybe num number two will be lucky. Kovinik lost to Anzibur in the semifinal of the MUSC Health Open, 6-3, 6-love. What's next on the calendar for the women? Istanbul. Istanbul. So they go to Istanbul and then they go over to Europe? Like, is... I. I, I never know which... Oh, and, and Stuttgart as well. And Stuttgart. Is, um, there's two. The indoor clay of um, mm. Stuttgart and the outdoor clay of Turkey. Mm. That's pretty rare. Indoor clay is pretty rare. It's unnatural <laughs> to put the dirt inside. I mean... Will we, we become like the, the organic tennis podcast now, haven't we? Yeah, I think so. No additives, no preservatives. That's right. Yeah. I, I'm all, all about wooden rackets with uh, string made from gut. <laughs> oh, have you seen the new Wilson Blade? Yeah, they're doing a French Open edition. No. And it looks like wood. Uh, one of the versions is like 
That's cool. It looks like a classic, like John McEnroe '80s racket. Does it go that far? Well, the shape is still a modern shape of a racket, but like the paint job mm. makes it look like it's kind of got a wooden paint finish. That's cool. Yeah, neat. But it's unnatural, right? <laughs> yeah. So we reject it out of hand. Yeah, doesn't pass the test. Nice try, Wilson. So let's get back to the natural world uh, of monaco or neighboring france and uh talk about some of the stuff that's been going on in monte carlo which it's it's a good event i mean it's not just that it's like the clay season is back and we're all pumped up about that that it's a master series event and it's just the men and even though i prefer the mixed events it's also kind of nice when they have a spotlight for themselves sometimes the play has been really good and you know probably the big story so far is is one mr dan evans yeah, I, I can't remember watching him on clay before, but I don't think he's ever really thrived on clay. So I didn't know what to expect, but I've been watching all his matches this run and it's been great to watch. I don't know if it was this tournament or the one before where he was playing, I think it was the one before, um, I can't remember where they were, maybe in Italy somewhere, and he was playing Musetti. Mm. I tuned in at the end of the first set and he lost the first set 6-1. And there was a moment at the end of the first set, the start of the second, where he's like, what are you doing Dan, what are you doing? Like talking to himself, play your game, just play your own game. Like, what are you doing? And then he started getting back into his normal slice, aggressive, up the court, going to the net, slicing. And he he took the second set and he was like, all right, I can play my game on clay. I don't have to play this baseline clay tennis. Mm. I'm just going to do my thing and that'll be fine. Um, And it's working in in Monte Carlo too. He's having a crazy run. Crazy run. So as far as his history on clay... Before this year, he had won four matches at ATP Tour level on clay. Oh, wow. And he's won four at Monte Carlo this week. Um, <laughs> but he looks, it's crazy. And he's 30 years old or something. It's its kind of crazy. He I mean, So we buried the lead a little bit. He beat Novak Djokovic. So he took down a French Open champion, number one in the world. Uh, he just beat David Goffin. Who else has he taken out? He's got four wins. I saw him against Gofan, and he was so impressive. Alivich was one. Oh, right. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. He, he apparently yeah. had multiple match points against Alivich. It took him a while to close it out. Oh, and he beat Hubert Herkash as well. Right, who was the That's last right. uh, Masters 1000 winner. So, you know, maybe not a great clay quarter, but they're kind of comparing the conditions here to Miami a little bit slow. Beating Novak Djokovic. So Novak Djokovic in his first round match, or uh, maybe he got a bye and had, and played in the second round. It was uh, it was against Yannick Sinner. He drew Yannick Sinner in his first match, and I'm thinking like, well, Sinner is just in the final, and he, this guy's this kid's a you know he was a French Open quarter finalist uh, in his first appearance. I mean the kid can play on clay, so I was really excited to see that Novak hasn't played since the Australian Open, um, which is kind of hard to believe. But uh, so he's been on the shelf for a while and he just came out and he just dismantled Sinner. And it gave me that feeling like, oh, Novak, the killer is back. He's just he's well rested. He's not going to take any bullshit from one of these up and comers. He's going to take everybody down and get into that form that that we know like he can reach. And then Dan Evans took it to him. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) Dan Evans, we called him a scrappy hood rat. Yeah. At some point. Um, but, you know, I want to challenge that. Okay. Because, like, in his polo shirt on the clay, to me, he's looking more like Prince William. <laughs> <laughs> Did Prince William 
have a tattoo of Jesus Christ uh, with a crown of thorns like on his forearm. Does Dan Evans have that? Is that what that tattoo is? Yeah, Dan Evans has a massive Jesus tattoo. Ah, I didn't notice that. It's really gnarly. Yeah, I've seen the tattoo, but I never really realized what the actual picture was. There you go. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, bringing on a, a religious consultant to, to discuss the, the symbolism of spiritual tattoos and faith in a monotheistic God and, you know, its role in sports. Um, so that's, that's something for a future episode. But Dan Evans, big Jesus tattoo. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, he, despite that, to me, he still, he still has, like, this... Um, you know, in the way that the British royal family, amongst the men, they have this kind of bit of a rugged mm. affiliation with the military, you know, and land rovers and helicopters and military uniforms and stuff like that. But they're still like oh, rich, smiling, well-dressed imbeciles. Um, not that Evans is an imbecile. <laughs> I'm not saying that, but uh, yeah, he just, you, I don't know. What, what am I? What the hell am I saying? Good on Dan Evans for his nice win there. Yeah, I, I don't know how much of an aristocrat he is. I think one of the reasons we 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 got onto the scrappy hood rat uh, idea is because well, there's like two things I remember from his past. I think for one, his family owns a bar. Uh, I think that was part of his backstory. Yeah. Actually, his father is an electrician and his mother is a nurse. And then on another note, I mean, there's the the cocaine. Uh, you know, positive test. And he just, he doesn't strike me as like a mannered lad. You know, he seems like a regular Joe um, or Dan in this case. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I think I never really found a ton to admire in his game, but he's got a lot of variety and this the scrappy part of that moniker we gave him is really apt. I mean, he just gets his teeth in and grinds. And one of the things I loved watching him play GoFan today, I was rooting for GoFan. I have a real soft spot for David. Um, Me too. And I felt, you know, sorry for him because, like, he just always seems like he's falling short in these matches he could win. And he just beat Alex Verev. Um but uh, Dan Evans, like, somehow got GoFan, like, into an emotional state. And that was really cool to see. Like, GoFan was, like, emoting and expressing himself more than I've ever seen. I mean, he's a very mellow dude. And you just, like, you could just tell they both wanted it a lot. And that added uh, a real nice depth of flavor to the match, I think. You're right. GoFan normally keeps a level head. And it was pretty impressive the way... Because Gofan has more power, he plays with more top spin on the forehand mm. than Evans does. He was more he was the one looking to be more aggressive. He was the one hitting more winners. But Evans mixed it up by like taking the serve early sometimes, coming forward, serving and volleying, um, and just yeah, really mixing it up and, and playing uh, a, a scrappy kind of mixy mixed up kind of style that re- that really disrupted the the um clean ground strokes of Gofan. Hmm. Yeah, and he he I get I think this gets back to like what Al was saying where he was talking to himself in the third person being like play your game, Dan. 
like he he's like you know he's not playing a traditional clay court game necessarily he's coming into net a lot you know like attacking just trying to be really aggressive and in the GoFan match he was up a break in the first set and then GoFan won a slew of games in the row to kind of steal it and Evans had to adjust his strategy and kind of puzzle his way through the match and GoFan was playing great I think GoFan failed to convert or you could flip it around Dan Evans saved something like 16 out of 18 breakpoint chances like GoFan GoFan could not convert anything he had he had I think four chances deep in the third set to break Evans and go up and failed to convert and then got broken to lose the match it was uh yeah really impressive mental effort from from Dan good stuff I just don't think you see people slice on clay as much as Dan Evans slices on clay Mm. I love that it works I didn't think it worked I didn't think it worked so effectively but he makes it work somehow yeah it'll be interesting to see so he's got Tsitsipas next who got through in a uh in a retirement unfortunately Alejandro Davidovich Fakina had to retire and Tsitsipas is through I like that guy I like that guy too he wears Diodora you don't see many players Mm. wearing Diodora these days He's one of those ones that just comes out of the woodwork when the clay season comes. Totally. Mm. Yeah. Every season he just pops up and he goes so deep. He's so good. Yeah, I really like him too. And his hairstyle. You like his hairstyle? Yeah. It's a bushy and push back with the headband thing. Yeah. Yeah. He, he'd go well with a mullet, I reckon. I hate that the mullet's such a thing again. <laughs> I'm not a fan. <laughs> is, that, is it becoming a thing again in Australia? Because uh, I don't think it's a, yeah. it's a thing really. It's always a thing. <laughs> Nah, it's having a moment for sure. It's a lot of like you know football players and mm. and and just people in general in life are just going full mullet again at the moment. It's a bizarre comeback. The reason why I thought Dan Evans looked like royalty, I realise now, is because of his new clothing sponsor, which is Luke. What is this British brand called Luke? And they have a monogram on the on the breast which is like a lion like that british royalty yeah. lion yeah right and they really trade on that and he's you know the pol- full polo shirt and like they, they i just looked at their website and it's like they trade on their britishness mm. 20 years of, of british brilliant britishness hmm. is what they say and i think it's since 1977 but i've never heard of them till now um and evans is a guy well, is it posh? Yeah, it's a bit posh. I mean, they have like the monogram is the, the, the logo on the breast of the lion. That's very posh because that's got all the royalty connotations. But then they do have like T-shirts and whatever. But if they're going for Britishness, the quintessentially Britishness, I think it's, it's a bit posh. That's what Dan Evans was wearing against Gofan. Because mm, he used to be, he used to be Yoksoi. Is that how you pronounce that? Yeah. That Japanese one? Bublik's still with them. Yeah, that's right. I did notice the lion insignia. And, you know, in my mind, I didn't necessarily think that that was so like such an indicator of posh, upper class kind of attitude. You know, to me, in my mind, that almost seems like, you know, working class bloke, like trying to kind of put on airs a little bit. It feels like being obsessed with being British or like aspiring to royalty or like admiring royalty is kind of of the people that's like that's what common folks do so i i I didn't associate it right away with uh with being like upper class 
I, I'm saying that as like a total snob, I realize, but that's okay. That's what I am. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's just like he's in Monaco with the rich backdrop of the water and everything. Yeah. And he's wearing a polo shirt at the Monte Carlo <laughs> Country Club. And he kind of looks in the face a little bit like Prince William. I just kind of like made it work in my mind. But he might be, he might not at all be a posh guy when you get to know him. Okay. So I don't think he is at all. But yeah. Anyway. Yes. Yeah, so, so, yeah. so what do we like? We got to rename him or, you know, it's if it's no longer Scrappy Hood Rat Tennis. What is it? It's like Scrappy Royal Tennis. Scrappy what? Royal Tennis. <laughs> scrappy Royal. Those Royals really have to scrap around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like to to survive, don't they? Well, I'm imagining like, you know, like an old British king, like on the hunt, you know, like Henry VIII going foxing or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> so he's, he's got his, he's got his polo shirt on. He's got like a shotgun. He's on a, <laughs> he's on a horse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That rugged adventure Britishness. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like, you know, he does like man's man's activities for fun but that he doesn't really need to do you know like <laughs> like it's not like he needs to hunt for his own food no he's got peasants to do that for him that's right and when he kills something he doesn't clean it you know he like takes down the wild beast and then his like you know his uh, <laughs> his physiotherapist does that for him <laughs> Is <it his> physio- <laughs> I was going to say his squire, but yeah, <laughs> or, or in modern parlance, his, his physio. <laughs> I have a whole new image in my brain now of Dan Evans. I still, I'm still stuck on original bar dwelling last out of the pub at 5am Dan Evans. That's who I still see him as. It's like, yeah, last call. And Dan's there till the last call, you know, in the pub. Yeah, and he does not yeah. does not want to go home. So he's looking looking for no. an after party, uh, or possibly starting a fight in the streets. Yeah, that's the Dan Evans I know. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair enough. His playing style definitely is the Scrappy Hood Rat playing style. Like on clay, anyway, it seemed to be like he was really scrapping around. I always think of him as the underdog. I mean, I don't know how you escape that. I guess he doesn't, he's not physically imposing. You know, it's interesting seeing him against Gofan and having Gofan being the person with a heavier shot. I mean, Gofan is strong as hell, but he's small compared to other people on tour. He's got that like wiry strength. There's something about like, I think, you know, Evans, he's, he's like balding a little bit and he's got the crooked teeth and he just, he doesn't look like this manicured tennis champion and it would be kind of awesome if he had some major breakthrough and got to like a slam final or something i would be all about it yeah same i would love that well we'll see i was predicting novak djokovic to just win the french uh based on that one match against yannick sinner and then he lost to dan evans so (laughs) gotta gotta cool it on the on the predictions i think rafa was beating everyone 6-1 6-1 up until the match, which we don't know the result of, against uh, Rublev. We were asking Al before the call if we should watch the match, but then we decided we actually just wanted to get on with our lives. Matt and I don't know the results. Alex is going to tell us a little story about what happened. So how did Rafa come out of the gates? How did he look today? Well, Rublev really admires Nadal. He's one of his kind of benchmarks of what he what he wants his game to be and what he's always grown up admiring so I was really interested about this one I thought maybe Rublev hits too flat but 
I just think I, that was just in my head because he doesn't really at all. Nadal usually comes out of the gate and just starts off like he's in the middle of a match. Like he looks like he's just come out, there's already a setup, and he just carries on like that. But Rublev broke him immediately, first game, and then held. And then I think maybe even broke him again. And it was all of a sudden, Rublev's up a double break. And I'm just like, what is going on here? Uh, this is Monte Carlo on clay, and Rublev's come out of the gate, and this three love up. Rafa's serve was just not working. Mm. That was his biggest problem. It was just his first serve was not there, and then his second serve was getting attacked really badly by Rublev. Rublev just had a, a very, very clear game plan. He was like, whatever I do, I don't want that ball to go anywhere near Rafa's forehand. Mm. Doesn't matter where I am in the court, it's going to the backhand. Mm. And he just, every single shot, it was just backhand, into Rafa's backhand, into Rafa's backhand, until he pulled him out of the court enough and just pumped one down the line and passed him. It was really just powerful, precise tennis from Rublev with a very clear head and a very confident mindset. So he was up a double break early and he kept that and it ended up first set was 6-2 six, six, yeah. to Rublev. Oh, wow. Okay, because now I'm like, I'm like, all right, how does this, how does Rafa adjust? Like Rublev, I think the main criticism of him at this point is that he's kind of one note. He's very good at that one note, but it seems like the elite guys always get over on him because they have more harmonies to go to. Like they got a little bit more, you know, variety in the bag. So, all right, what happened in set two? Well, it was sort of the majority was baseline tennis, but Rublev was coming up to the net and finishing points when he had to, and he was getting some volleys done. And uh, so there was a bit of variety, but it was definitely a baseline slog between those two for a lot of it, but it was really engrossing. In the second set, I think Rublev might have got up break early again, but then Rafa got a break back and held, and all of a sudden it was on serve again. And I was like, okay, okay, fine. Finally, Rafa's shown up. Here we go. But his serve was still, still not happy with it, and he was getting really frustrated, which you don't really see Rafa do very often. But he was like yelling at himself, like Rafa, and wow. hitting the ball into the net, like just he, a few points. He would just absolutely smash a ball into the net, and he was looking at his team like, "What is going on?" I don't think I've ever seen him that worked up. Wow, edgy Rafa. Yeah, I guess it's crazy. He'd been winning all his games so easily up to this point. Yeah, his serve was just not there, and then I think he was just put off by it, like. Maybe his focus was gone after. But anyway, Rublev was up. He was up a break in the second set and almost a double break. But Rafa held and then broke back and then held and then got it back on serve. And he ended up taking the second set. Rafa took the second set. You know, at one point I think it was 4 2 uh, in, in favor of Rublev and it looked like, wow, okay, he's just a couple games away. But Rafa took the second set and I was like, all right. Really, at that point, still, I thought Rafa's gonna win this. Like the same thing I think about when Djokovic does that. You know, he wins the second set or something, and you're like, okay, now from here, he's got yeah. it. They came out in the third set, and first game, Rublev broke Nadal, and then Rublev held, and then Rublev broke Nadal again. Double break up again Whoa. in the third set. Uh, yeah, and I was like, oh my god. And then Rafa was just absolutely livid with himself, just shouting and just like so pent up. But Rublev just was so calm throughout the whole process. There was no, not like he was celebrating really good points, but in between he was just like 
taking deep breaths, walking really purposefully to the line. There was no jitteriness about him. He wasn't looking at his box too much. He was just really just down to business, really level-headed. He ended up taking the third set. 6-2, So from the Department of Overreactions, uh, do we think that this means Rafa's vulnerable at Roland Garros? Uh, I don't think so because I think it was not last year, maybe the year before, where he had that run of in the warm in the lead up tournaments, got knocked out a bunch early, earlier than expected mm. in 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 some of the in the in the Spain clay tournaments, but then still won Roland Garros <laughs> like easily. Um, so I don't think so. I think he's fine. Yeah, he takes an L once in a while in the run-ups, but it's usually to people I think are like really great clay quarters. Like he loses to Fanini sometimes, he loses to Team sometimes. Uh, like I know Tsitsipas got a Tsitsipas, win over him yeah. last year in uh, in one of the tournaments, one of the Masters events run-ups. Um, but yeah, Roland Garros is just different somehow. But mm. yeah, I, I just... I don't know, guys. Like, I every year I find myself thinking, like, surely there's going to be a change, you know? I mean, you can't rule forever, but then I'm just not sure with Rafa. Maybe he is going to win Roland Garros when he's 43, you know? Like, he's just going to keep <laughs> doing it, and nobody can really compete with him there. Um, but I, I hope it's not the case, and I hope it's not sudden either. Like, I hope somebody really has to bring it to beat him like in a final at Roland Garros. I think that would be epic mm. um, because I'm a little bored of, I mean, he's won it 13 times now. Come on. Yeah. Give somebody else a chance. All these clay court specialists. I mean, how is Casper rude going to win a slam? How is uh, Alejandro <laughs> Fokina Davidovich going to win a slam? It's like, if it's not clay, it's never going to happen. Christian Garin. You know, like there's all these, you were yeah. saying now, like this is the time of year these guys come out of the woodwork. I'd like that about clay too, that there's just some players that are like kind of non-viable uh, on other surfaces. And uh, some players who are non-viable on clay, like Medvedev apparently, or Dan Evans before this year. But Medvedev didn't even get to play this tournament because he tested positive for COVID-19. Yeah. He had some funny things to say about the clay season before it started, even though as well, he's just like, I hate it. <laughs> he's like, I don't, he's like I, there's nothing I like about playing on clay. <laughs> you get dirty. Everything's dirty after you play. There's nothing I like about it. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to like, you know, he doesn't want to be dragging dirt back to his, you know, Monte Carlo palace, getting yeah. it into like the video game console machinery. It'd be a real drag. Curios hates the clay. Curios hates the clay. Demonor sucks on clay. He's also useless. Yeah, which surprised me, but yeah. Yeah, you would think, like, does he hit the ball too flat? Is, the, is it the flatness? Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, yeah, you need to have shape on your shot. It's just required. Yeah. He's got the movement for it, but yeah, his shot's just too, way too flat. Yeah, he's got the movement and the, like, stamina, athleticism and stuff for, mm. for clay, but yeah, not... That's where that's why I think Kyrgios doesn't like clay because he has to work too hard. Like he could have mm. the game for clay if he trained hard and was more disciplined. But you gotta you gotta work hard on clay. You gotta go to work. You gotta go to the dirt shop. That's right. You gotta you gotta <laughs> grind your way 
through some clay stones, mm. grind out some 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 rock, you know, go to the mill, get into the mine. <laughs> I'm really reaching here. Go to the quarry. Yeah, go to the quarry. That's it. Yeah, go to the clay quarry. Yeah, Kyrios is like the classic grass quarter. He's just like, I just want to hit a perfect serve that is unreturnable. And fuck you. <laughs> like, you know, like, I want to grind it out. That's ridiculous. You know, I got things to do. Like, that's kind of the Nick attitude. Yeah, and uh, speaking of, how, you know, how's Roland Garros just pushing back a week and, and therefore shortening the grass yeah. season even further? Yeah. Yeah, that pisses me off too. Like, we were just talking about that, how this year of all years we'd like the grass court season to be longer, and yet um, Roland Garros just, they don't give a shit about anybody else. That, and I don't know. I guess I guess the whole thing is to try and really protect don't. lives in France. I mean, that's that's sort of what it's about. But But when it comes to the tennis tournament, making a tennis tournament decision, they don't care about others. Yeah, they just want people there, whether for the atmosphere or financial or probably both. Yeah. They they were like, we could hold it without fans or we could push it back, mess with the whole calendar and maybe have some fans. So we'll do that. <laughs> so, so it's two weeks of warm-up and then Wimbledon? Yeah. Maybe yeah, maybe so. Wimbledon can be like, all right, you're going to mess with the calendar, so will we. And be like, push it back as well and then... Um, put it on the US Open and then the US Open could be alright it's Australian Open we're going to push it back <laughs> well they they the, apparently the, I didn't realise the Grand Slams have a little Grand Slam party where they talk about all Grand Slam things mm. um, but they, they you know there's a board or whatever that oversees all four of them and they put out a statement saying yep we support them do it mm. you know us, us Grand Slam people support the Roland Garros Thing, so well right why would they <laughs> wimbledon doesn't care it's eastbourne and yeah, eastbourne is that a place yeah, exactly. and uh holly yeah, and yeah, yeah. you know these these grass clubs yeah, queens queens club i don't know i think as a fan though i also don't want them to be that close together because when the slams are on i spend a lot of my free time watching tennis <laughs> and yeah. i like a little break once in a while you know as much as i love it mm. yeah agreed Okay, I think we need to do our annual should Hawkeye replace line judges on clay <laughs> forum. So let me start with our resident line judge, Matt Rochford. What what do you think? Um, well, you know what I'm going to say. Do I? I actually don't know. A line judges should be on all surfaces, not just clay. I saw a line umpire at Monte Carlo make the right call and then was challenged by the player and then the umpire came out, checked the mark, agreed with the line judge that it was in, and then Hawkeye confirmed that they were both right mm. um, and the player was wrong. The problem is, you know, people make mistakes, but if we aspire to the excellence showed in that situation where they got it right and it was a really, really tight call, it was like <laughs> it was a millimetre of catching the line. Like, if we aspire to that level of excellence and, like, you know, pay the line judges properly and give them consistent work, mm. then what we'll see is, <laughs> you know, more more of that drama, more of that human interaction, more of that social interaction, and the judges will get the calls right more often. There'll still be, like, some some bad moments, but that's sport. 
for me anyway. Mm. Great answer. I love how you managed to make it a proxy for like uh, the labor struggle in general. <laughs> Always. <laughs> that's that's what I should have known you were going to say. Um, and yeah. I phrased the question a little wrong because it's not like line judges and Hawkeye are mutually exclusive. Obviously, they've coexisted for a long time. Yeah. But what I love about what you just said, Matt, is that we don't spend enough time focusing on these cases where the humans get it right. You know, where the the officiants get it right. We're only paying attention when they fuck it up. There was a a thing in the Dan Evans go fan match. The one I remember in that one was Dan hit a hit a first serve, and it and it touched the line, uh, but it was called out, and and Dan wanted it checked, and so the umpire came down and checked it and looked at a mark and said, no, that's that's out. I agree, that's out. And Dan was like, "No, no, no, that's the wrong mark. Look, look at look. Just have a look at which mark looks fresher." And he made a sort of a decent point about this. He's just like, "I know, we, you know, people disagree about what mark, but just have a look. The other one is way more fresher. That's that's clearly the newer <laughs> right. mark." And the umpire was like, "No, it's out." And then, uh, you know, they as they do, which this is the part I don't agree with. They showed uh, the Hawkeye what Hawkeye suggests, mm. and it was. It was in, but then they showed a, the actual camera, the, the, the replay really slowed down and uh, the camera footage of it and it was clearly in. Yes. Um, so they, they got it wrong and they looked at the wrong mark and Dan had to hit a second serve, but luckily he won that point. So it feels like justice was sort of restored there. But um, Yeah, in the game. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, in that game. Yeah. So my whole thing about that is Hawkeye, there's some discussion about whether it's accurate enough on clay. I don't understand how it could possibly be so inaccurate that it's not usable. I don't see how that's possible. But the other option is using Fox 10, which is the sort of alternate to Hawkeye, which they some clay courts use it and some hard courts use it too. But it's basically actual camera. It's like an actual slowdown. You see the ball bounce. You know, mm. so it's not like a computerized, visualized assessment or like guesswork, which is basically what Hawkeye is. But it's actually you see the ball bounce, and that can work on clay. So that that should be there, not necessarily in place of line judges, but as a as an alternative to Hawkeye to give the players the possibility of challenging on clay. I think that should be there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I find that that technology has a different set of problems, though, because since there is a camera feed of the actual ball striking the ground, and there's this thing like the ball, it's compressible. So it hits the ground and it kind of squishes down. And it's hard to really see the exact point of contact. Yeah. And there, so there's, there, there is it's always true. a little bit of fuzziness there. And I think that the simulated view is actually better for just removing ambiguity. Now, there have been times where I've thought, I'm not so sure Hawkeye saw that correctly. But the main thing is consistency and also just removing these ridiculous arguments. Like the thing that happens on clay, and this isn't about whether or not we should get rid of line judges. It's when the umpire comes down from the chair to check a mark and they're checking the wrong mark and or they get into an argument with the player about whether or not a mark that they're both looking at is actually touching a line. (laughs) Like... It's It's, so absurd. I guess it's kind of hilarious in a way, but like clay court matches are already longer than other matches and it just feels unnecessary. And I I think even though I can rationalize the extra bit of humanity and drama that comes from all of those interactions, and I do like that, but the Australian Open this year, 
the U.S. Open as well, when they just had no line judges and it was just computer making the call, there was just no bullshit. It was just like, that's the call. We're just going to move on and continue playing tennis. And the focus is on the game. And I love the purity of that, that they're just like in the game and there's nothing that can take them out of that, really. I mean, they could still like be like, can I see the replay as if that would make them feel better, (laughs) (laughs) which seems kind of pointless. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I'm I am torn because I like the humanity. I like all of the extra little bits. I've been watching more NBA this year, you know, now that I'm back in the States and the Knicks are like, you know, back, they're like mediocre again. So we're all celebrating. Uh, I (laughs) like I I'm watching a lot of games and holy fuck, the end of those games is just sometimes like, you know, there'll be five minutes on the clock and it'll be 45 minutes before the game's over. You know, yeah, it's like and it's not just like timeouts and fouls. The big change recently is that they do more instant replay. So the refs will be like, well, uh, we think that that might have been a flagrant foul because this player's managed to stop moving at exactly this point in space that's just under the three-point shooter. It's bananas. It just sucks all the drama out of the game. And with or without an automated robot solution, tennis is just so much more tennis, you know? There's less of the extra stuff, and I love that. So um, so what I'm saying is uh, all computers all the time. All computers. We need a referee in the chair. We need a person in a high chair. I, I lean further towards that. I do like the, the line judges in, in some aspects, but I, I do lean more to just get it right, just make, just focus on the tennis. The calls, you know, it's, even tennis is so easy to do. Like it's... The only rules really are if that ball bounces outside that line. Like that's right. It's it, you know in NBA, there's so many things they have to check, and they take the time to get all that right. But in tennis, it's so simple. It's just like it's just one line. If it's in, it's in. If it's out, it's out. Like just get it right, and let's get focus on actually playing a great match. You know, I kind of lean towards automation. A hundred percent. Tennis is governed by objective truth. There is nothing about tennis that is open to interpretation is it though much more so than other sports every sport where there's fouling basketball soccer american football hockey they are all very much at the mercy of the the referee's decision to impose penalties it makes a huge difference on the outcome of matches and a lot of that stuff i think there are objective measures by which they evaluate whether or not something is a foul. Like, I I do think they are trying to be objective, but because it's physical bodies in motion and there's all this complexity, they have to make calls under pressure and there's distractions and they're not always looking or their view is obscured. Like, there's just so much room for error and it really affects the play. Yeah, there's so many variables. Yeah. 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 It's more open to interpretation, definitely. But just on the objective truth of tennis stuff, Mm. While I agree, it's like whether the ball is out or in, like it should be kind of an objective truth. Ever since tennis started, it was always the human eye perceiving whether or not the um, ball was in or out. Mm. And that's the way most people experience tennis when they play it, because no one's playing with sophisticated technology when they're playing down at the park. And yeah, you could say it's a step up to have the technology, but there's more people being interested in the game and being part of the game if you have line judges. It means that people that don't have the skills or athleticism to be players can still be part of high-level tennis. Hmm. 
by um, training to be a line umpire and aspiring to a level of excellence in their field and using their eye and their brain make the decision. I just think that's something to be celebrated and that we'll lose, you know, we'll, we'll easily, it's, it's almost lost and we'll very much easily lose it if we continue down this path. Mm. Yeah, I guess I don't think that, you know, because that's how tennis was, that's how it always was judged with the eye, that's because, just because we could, couldn't do it then, now we can. And I'm not on the same side there with not evolving, not embracing technology, moving forward, I guess there's a push and pull there between tradition and moving forward. I think a lot of other sports have embraced technology to the fullest, probably sometimes too far. You know, in soccer or football, they, um, the VAR, there's a lot of discussion about whether that's a good thing or not. But when there's an offside call there, they get a shot and they just draw a line with the computer across the field to see if that player's foot is ahead or behind the defender and they make the call based on that hard line, you know, and they use the technology for that. That wouldn't have been around at the start of the EPL and the British football, but they've moved forward and, and now that governs it. And I, I don't see sure. why tennis should be different. Sure, but Al, in that case, they're not actually replacing the three referees mm. on the field in soccer. Like, they're still yeah. all there and they're still putting up the flag if they think it's an offside mm. or not. But we're actually talking about eliminating these umpires altogether. I just think we're worse off for It's an interesting point because I think the reason it's possible to do that in tennis is because the rule that is being evaluated is very clear, like whether or not a ball lands within a well-defined set of boundaries on the bounce. And there's always some unobstructed view of that, um, which is not necessarily true for a line judge. It seems to me like the computer's ability to see what is actually happening on the court is superior to line judges, even when they are well-trained, even when they are dedicated and passionate and care about what they're doing. They still are going to make more errors than the computer. Like, I think most people come down on the side of getting the call right is the most important thing. But the loss of humanity in tennis, if we remove line judges, is a little bit more significant. It'll make the matches seem a little quieter. I think, Matt, one of your arguments was that it also separates the play experience for professionals and the play experience for regular people. You can't go to the court and get Hawkeye. That's not happening at your club. If you could, if you could turn on Hawkeye and not make the calls yourself when you're playing, wouldn't you do that? Because it's usually just you and another person trying to make the calls as you're playing. Yeah, trying to make the calls yourself, it's annoying in tennis because you want to just play and not have to like focus on whether the ball was in or out because that interferes with you hitting your own shot. Mm. So my ideal would be that we live in a socialist utopia mm. and instead of spending resources on things like missiles and coal mining and like stuff that destroys the environment and the planet, the jobs that you could do, you have a lot of free time and if you care about tennis maybe you do some time in your local commune as a line judge so that you could assist other players to have a better playing experience and so you go down to the club and there's like people willing to be your line judge for your social match that would be all i would prefer that right that experience than to have a computer tell me yeah i think the, the computer is more likely to happen though <laughs> well maybe maybe 
Just just ask Davy. At this stage. Ask Davy Gravy. Yeah, ask Davy what he prefers. <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna choose the computer. He is a computer. That's right. We already know. But maybe he likes like you know data on Star Trek. You know. Yeah. He aspires to be human. Maybe Davy Gravy aspires to be more human, and therefore would prefer a line umpire. Oh, I like that. You know, it's kind of in in keeping with the idea that as I lose my humanity, he gains yeah. some of uh, his own. <laughs> I prefer the quiet grace of a court unfettered by errors or lying judges. The game played in a form perfect and true. The ball is either in or it is out. There is no in-between. He's going to be hosting this podcast soon. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll be crunching the numbers for him. (laughs) Is is he a he? (laughs) Yes, he's a he. Yeah. I made him in my image and he is a he him. Yes. Okay. Those are his chosen pronouns. I mean, he has no sex, so... He's bi, Neri. He's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, was, that was a real dad joke. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think it's appropriate to give him a human gender um, at this stage, but maybe he would like evolve at some point and choose a new gender or choose to be gender non-conforming or something, you know? Right. Yeah, when when he when Davy Gravy actually develops self-awareness, he can choose whatever gender he likes, but since I made Davy Gravy in my image, <laughs> I think he's a male robot. Okay. Davy Gravy might transition at some point. <laughs> yeah, that's up to him. you know, that's up to Davy Gravy once he's <laughs> autonomous. <laughs> <laughs>